And tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 27. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 27. We looked at three kings on Tuesday night. Uzziah, who's fairly famous, he lived a long time as the king. He's known for, in the latter part of his life, going to the temple and wanting to burn the incense and stuff in the temple where he's not supposed to go because he's from Judah and only the Levites do that. And so he's pretty well known for that story. It's in Kings and Chronicles. And so he got leprosy and he ended his reign in isolation as a leper and his son Jotham became the king. He did not have a long reign. He lived 41 years. He's our feature king tonight that we're going to look at. But after Jotham came his son Ahaz, who was the worst, just the worst. Ahaz is mentioned in the book of Isaiah. He's, he's there in Kings as well, and he's just, he was the worst. So I, I want to draw attention to that as we come to Jotham tonight, because his dad was a good king, but made a bad decision in the latter part of his life that profoundly affected him and how people perceived him in the last sequence of his life. And then his son, who he would never see this happen because he stepped into eternity when he was 41, Jotham did, his son was just the worst, just the worst in everything he did. But interestingly enough, when you really look ahead, after Ahaz died, his son was Hezekiah, who was phenomenal. Uh, so you get these sequences of generations of these Judah kings and like an average one, above average, below average, horrible, great, like you just, isn't that the human experience? Isn't that the way it works in human history? So tonight we come to Jotham, and he's chapter 27. There's not that many verses, so we're going to read it because he's the only guy. He's the star of the chapter, and we're going to look at his life and apply some good lessons for us in 2023. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jershua, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But still, the people acted corruptly. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built the cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forest he built fortresses and towers. He also fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him in that year, 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 of barley. The people of Ammon paid this to him in the second and the third years also. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all of his wars and his ways, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, so Jotham rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. When we look at the kings, as I mentioned in the introduction, we get a summary of their life generally, whether they're the kings of the north. There was 20, of, 20 in the north, none were good. 19 in the south, some were good. They encompass about two, 300 years total, between like 900 B.C. and 600 B.C. approximately. And you get these summary verses. And it's interesting to me because a good king or a great king, a great politician, a queen or a king or prime minister, whatever it might be, I suppose what you really want to do is just do a really good job and not be known for doing something really bad. 
It says in Thessalonians that his believers were to aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life and glorify the Lord in so doing. It doesn't mean that we can't be in the spotlight, that we can't shine for the Lord on a, a very large platform. But what it does imply is that we're true to ourselves, the person we see in the mirror, the type of person we are with the Lord when we walk out the door and how we live our life, that we're a woman of integrity or a man of integrity. I'd compare it to baseball. The best umpire in baseball is the one you never notice. You know, in football, same thing. You only notice bad refs and, or controversial calls in baseball. Like The best umpire is the one you never even knew who the umpire was. And if you think about Jotham's life here, and we read this, he's just like an umpire that was consistent with his strike zone, strike, ball, and just save out. Like, he just, he's that guy. We almost miss him. And I have to tell you, until last year when we were in 2 Kings, I never really thought much about him. He was one of 19 names. It was only last year when we went through 2 Kings that he finally came in my radar in my 35th year of living for Jesus. Never really thought about him. Because he's like the umpire you don't notice. He didn't do anything that really caught your attention for being bad or, or being great. He was just consistent and reliable. But coming around the block again a second time with Jotham this year, especially you know where I'm at in life in my early 60s and thinking about adult children, their marriages, grandchildren, cultures, shifting cultures, public opinions, all the things that we see. It's just really... I look at this man's life and it makes me appreciate who this man is and how he lived his life and it's encouraging to me and it's inspiring to me as well if you just read these nine verses while going through the bible in a year you would have just read it and thought okay yeah okay he's, he got mighty something stood out there but tonight we're going to look at these details of his life and think about it as it applies to our life as i mentioned he's not he's not his father he's compared to his father his father did what was right, but he didn't go in the temple like his dad did. So then one negative about his dad is not attributed to him. So if he had a dad that was really positive, but he did one thing really negative, and he said, well, he's just like his pot, the apple in the tree, except he didn't do what his dad did wrong. That's a compliment. And then the last thing we read is that his son Ahaz came to power, and Ahaz was an adult man when he came to power, and he made his choices. And we already saw last week that you don't punish a son for what his dad did, and you don't punish a dad for what his sons did. That, that's, that's in God's law. So here he is in the middle of a dad that lived a long time, who was probably the most stable politician Judah ever had, and would have been compared really to Jehoshaphat and David. That's who his dad would have been compared to. And then a son that was just the worst. And he's in here for 16 years of being a king. So he came to become king when he was 25. As we talked about, 25 is young, but not that young. 25, you know, if you're on that conveyor belt of how life works for a lot of people, 25 means you've done college. You could have done your community college, gone away to college. You could have gone to nursing school. You could have got a master's degree in something. Like, you know, 25, you could, you know, your, your formal education, if that's your route, or if you're in a tradesman or trade skill, ladies, applies to you as well. You know, whatever your interest might be, like, whatever it could be, ladies, like, 25, you know, like, you could have, you could have done this and done that and you know, you, you, you're kind of getting traction at 25. In other words, there's a big difference with the mental maturity, and I would say even hopefully emotional maturity, of someone that's 18 and 25. So he's a good age to become king. 
And it was forced upon him as his dad made his huge blunder. Suddenly he was thrust into having to do the practical things of a king while his dad still lived. It's sort of like where the boss is still the boss, but from far away, so you have to respect the boss. But you're kind of functioning like the boss, but you still have to respect the boss, and the boss is pop. That's what he had in his uh, situation, his human experience. And then he came to power 16 years Now, as older people know this really well, the younger people maybe not as well, but 16 years is not a lot of time. We celebrated 18 years as a church just two months ago. 16 years goes fast. You bring home your baby from the hospital, and in 16 years, you're teaching them how to drive over there on Red Hill in the big parking lot, you know, and just like, go. And your spouse says, you teach them to drive, I'll teach the other one to drive, right? That's what, you know, 16 years will do. 41 years is not a long time to live. It's interesting, and again, you older people might be able to relate to this, but I, I don't remember my 30th birthday, my 50th, or my 60th. I just don't. But I remember my 40th. Because on my 40th, we had just moved to Orange County, or we were moving to Orange County, and Jennifer and the four kids, we all took the, the ferry, the Catalina Cruiser, flyer over to Catalina, and I, I opened up the, the wallet more than I normally would, and we got the, go, the golf cart, and we drove all over Catalina. It's just the most, it's such a day, it's a day I'll never forget, my 40th birthday. And in looking at Jotham earlier this week, I thought, what if I stepped into eternity on my 41st birthday? Okay, so that would have been 2001. That's, that's like when we're getting going. That's, that's Phil Wickham at 17. That's Jeremy Camp still being our main worship leader. At Big Calvary. That's when Charlo Broderson was a teenager. Joe Henschel was a teenager with a band called Farewell Down, and he was 17, and they were rockers. What if I stepped in eternity that year when Luke was four, and Timmy was six, and Hannah, Leah was seven, and Hannah was nine? What would it have been like for my wife if I'd stepped in eternity at the age of 41? How different everything would have been. You see the value of life? We do. 41 reminds us life is short. And when you read business books and success books and stuff, they talk a lot about quality and quantity and service, QQS. Some people live a richful life where they live a quality life and they have quantity and quality and they provide a great service to humanity and what they do. And some people, they, don't, they live a long life but don't have anything they give. Some people... Give something but have a shorter life. This man had a shorter life, but he really was a blessing to himself, to the person in the mirror, and he was a blessing to the people he led, to his family. Again, Ahaz made his own choices. Ahaz could never blame his arrogance, his pride, and his rebellion against God on his father. That is for sure. If he tried to play the PK card, you know, preacher's kid, our kids tried that once, just once. It was Timmy. Of course it was Timmy. And Timmy said, well, you know, it's hard being, you know, pastor's kid at Calvary schools. And I didn't say anything. The other three kids just mugged him. It was the policing of the tribe against itself, you know, like, because the kids know, like, no, dad and mom were always there for them. And if anything, ministry was neglected at the expense of prioritizing marriage and children, which I would never have regret over, by the way, because that's always my first ministry as it is yours. So he lived 41 years. 
A summary, really, the summary of verse, and, and even in preparing a study, this jumps out at you back there in verse 6, where he says, he became mighty. That's an interesting phrase. Like, you don't see that a lot. You can't just be born mighty. You're not just mighty by default. You know, winning the lottery doesn't make you mighty. Mighty is character. Mighty is fiber. Mighty is like who you are as a woman. You know when you look in the mirror whether you're mighty in the things of God or not. You can't buy true might in the human experience. It's earned through a life of faith and obedience and humility and service. You become mighty, and you never really arrive at being mighty. It's always till the last day being refined in strength of the things of the Lord. He became mighty. Wealth cannot buy might. You can inherit riches, but it doesn't make you a woman of character and integrity to manage those riches any more than it does for a man. You can inherit good looks. You can be the fastest person on planet Earth. You can be the smartest person in the room. But it doesn't make you mighty. The world is filled with educated idiots. Real might is the strength of the Lord working in and through your life to the glory of the Lord and a life worth living and well lived. And you can't fake it. You either become that person in your journey at the age of 15 or 20 or 35 or 41 or 60 or 80 or 85 or 90. It's a becoming. And he became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. So we're told he became mighty. It's a summary of his life. And at 41 years, it's a short life. And in that 41 years, he was becoming something throughout that journey. He became mighty. And it's a summary of what the previous verses said about his life. And he became mighty because, because why did she become mighty? Why did he become mighty? Why did they become mighty? Because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. So he became mighty. And in this text, there's three things I definitely want to draw attention to that jump out at us for his might. He's identified for his might, really, and it's, it's subtly here, but it's defini- def- definitely here. In verse 3, it says that he, he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He built extensively on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built the cities and the mountains of Judah and the forest. He built fortresses and towers. He built. He became mighty because he built. A person that does nothing becomes nothing. A person that takes no risks accomplishes no thing of substance or or gain. Each of us must accept responsibility for our lives, and you surely understand this here at Worship Generation, of self-determination of whether we choose to make something of our life by yielding to the Lord and letting God work in our life, or we choose to do nothing. Jesus said, wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Most people are going on a paved road that's wide and broad. But narrow is the way that leads to life. The way of life is very narrow. The world as a whole has been influenced and affected and directed by less than 5% of the people at any given time in their generation. Whether they're people of faith or unbelief. But the people we really esteem in human history and even the last 100 years of our nation, most of them would be people who didn't walk a wide paved road, they walked a narrow path. And they walked it in conviction and character, like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany. Or an Amy Carmichael in India rescuing children in child trafficking before we even called it that in the day. 
or like a Mother Teresa just coming from her life there in Eastern Europe and committing herself to, to not have a man or, or have a family and to serve the lowest people in society. If there's anyone, is there anyone lower in hum, the human race than people in India who are the bottom case system? I was just talking with someone about India the other night. If you, if you pick three countries that I at least want to go to, I can guarantee you India is one of them. I just have no interest in going to India. It's like, I've been asked to go to India once or twice. I'm like, no, you go to India. Here's a check. <laughs> in Jesus' name. Like, you know, you put like Syria and India, those are two places right away. I'm like, yeah, I'm not interested in going to those places. Mother Teresa gave up her life to go serve people. But now we think 60 years later, who do we esteem? Who do we esteem? Uh, and even in society, take Martin Luther King Jr. as well for civil rights. Who do, you know, we don't, we don't take days off for TV critics. We don't have a Monday holiday for people who just sit back and criticize and attack everybody and everything. We take Mondays off to recognize people who lay down their life to the benefits of society in, in any capacity, but particularly in many cases in glorifying the Lord. That's why we esteem those books and those people. The Bonhoeffer book, these people. What you build is the most important thing that we can say about our life. Our life is building something. Our life exists with purpose and meaning. And we say this all the time, but we have the calling. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So we give our life to Christ and he's transforming us in character internally as a person by the spirit. But then he's calling us to something. And that calling to something is the building. What vocation, what skills, what, what's the purpose of my life? Your intellect, your interest, your passions, as a fully belong to the Lord. And in each day as you go out into the world and as you interact with people, how you treat people, how you respond to people, you're building. You're building the kingdom with the person that you see in the mirror and you're building the kingdom with the people you touch throughout your day. When Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, every day he was building his father's kingdom. And he always did those things that pleased the father. How he treated the leper, how he treated the woman caught in adultery. What he said about the children, the apostle said, get the kids out. He said, no, let the little children come to me. He was building. He was building the kingdom of God. When he fed the 5,000, when he taught on the Mount of Beatitudes, Jesus was building the kingdom. And then in the book of Acts, by the Spirit, he built the church and the kingdom through human beings, and they changed the world. And here today, in our lives, God is building the kingdom in and through our lives. Now, building fortresses in the forest and building fortifying walls and cities and other places of Judah, that's, that's what you would expect a politician to do, right? You know, we elect politicians, so I don't know what you hope for in a politician. I hope for a, a politician that will fear the Lord, start with. You know, be God-fearing, God-honoring. He doesn't necessarily have to, you know, be like Mr. On Fire for Jesus, but a man that fears the Lord, he's going to make good decisions. And, and like as he brings tax money in, you'd hope like, okay, hopefully, hopefully and build the infrastructure, security, make our country more safe. Because there's always people that don't like your country and your existence. So military defense, safe border, stuff like that. Hey, who wants traffic? So hopefully they'll plan well with counties and, and cities for, you know, wider roads, you know, flow of traffic, increased population. And like, that's a good politician. 
There's going to always be people that don't work that need to be fed, so hopefully you've got a good plan for that, right? There's nothing new under the sun. But, like, you know, like, building good things. Jotham did that. But, you know, I'd really like to see politicians, women and men, who build spiritual things and go all in. They're hard to find, and they're not that often. Jotham built the upper gate. Now, we studied this in Kings, but this is awesome. Because, now remember, his dad went where he couldn't go. His dad says, I'm the king, and no one tells me I can't be the king, and go into the temple and light the incense. And 80 priests confronted him and said, we're telling you, you can't do this. He's like, oh, he was in a rage. He's like, I'm going to teach you guys something. I'm the king. And then he had leprosy, and then they all ran out together. Dad crossed, dad crossed the line as the king and tried to do something the king can't do. Only Jesus gets to be king, priest, and prophet. Nobody else. Those three, the hat trick, it only belongs to our Lord and Savior, king of the universe, center of the universe, Jesus Christ. Uzziah crossed the line and was, died in exile as a leper. But his son... His son didn't cross that line, but you know what his son did? His son built the the best direct route to that place. He couldn't go in the temple, but he built a special entrance to the temple from the king's palace. And this isn't just, I mean, maybe it was, but it could be perceived as beneficial to him. So he built a direct line between his house, the king's palace, and the temple. And I'll give you an example. Back in the day when my sister-in-law used to work for the hotel... Uh, the Omni Hotel is down there in San Diego, right next to Petco Park. I use this example Tuesday night. But our kids remember this. We go down right after Petco Park was built, like 08, 09, 2010. And we, we, would, we would stay at the Omni. And, you know, there's all these entrances to Petco Park to go see the Padres. But the Omni has a direct path. It's like it's off the third floor. You, you, you just walk right out the hotel. You're in the hotel. You're a guest of the hotel. And you walk right through this direct route. And there you are. There's your ticket. You're in the game. You just shortcutted everything. And you, you came to the event, to the Padre game. It was a direct route. And that's what happened here. Because he built a direct route to the temple. So it, you might say it's a matter of convenience like that. But really it was a witness to the people too. Because everybody could see it. So... What's fascinating to me in this story is it says that although he did what was right, and I'm sure you caught this, still the people acted corruptly, which just goes to show even the best king or queen can't make everyone do good things. He did what was right, but the narrative by the Holy Spirit tells us, but the people still acted corruptly. Now, in 2 Kings, we're told they worshiped at the high places. And like every politician, you probably pick your battles. Like, okay, we can walk across the hall, shake hands on this one. That's a non-negotiable. And what are you going to do? These people are going to always exist. And I suppose Jotham just came to a place where he said, you know what? If those people want to worship in those high places, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. But I'm going to build a direct route from the king's palace right to the temple so everyone knows that at the top of the land for the king who is accountable to the living God and the people of covenant, they all know that this is the most important thing in my life. In other words, when he built that upper gate, he was saying, because, you know, people watch our lives, right? They watch our lives and they watch what we're doing. And people can tell if you think it's important to get to the house of God. And they see you building the upper gate to get to the house of God. You know, when at work and people see that you prioritize spiritual things at work, that church things matter, that kingdom things matter, integrity in how you treat your employees matter, your yes is yes, your no is no. 
you're building the upper gate. We're all building something. We can pave roads and build better policies as politicians, things like that. But really, when we're motivated by the kingdom of the Lord, by the kingdom of God, and the glorifying the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, we build the upper gate. That's what you do. How you treat your employees, how you respond to your bosses, that, that's building the upper gate. So we bring the upper gate to work, and when we make church and the body of Christ and spiritual things important, it's, they're building the upper gate. Someone gets in your car with you to go run an errand, and, and it's your car, and you get to be, have the authority of that drive, and you've got praise music on or K-Wave teaching or something like, hey, you're, you're building the upper gate. They might just be building a tower in the forest, but you're building the upper gate, and people can see it. Life is short. 41 years is short. Build the upper gate. We're still here. Build the upper gate. Let people see that the thing that matters most in our life, we are builders. It's what we're building. What are we building? We are building the upper gate. We are building the kingdom of God. We are building spiritual things. And even though I work here at you know, Taco Bell, or I do this, or I do that, or whatever, I am building the upper gate. And I might even be building the wall in the forest and the fortresses in the forest. But know this, what matters most to me and all that's building my life is really I'm building the upper gate. I'm showing people that God is the most important thing in my life. And there's a direct route between my house and the house of praise with the living God. We build the upper gate. That's what he built. Jesus built the upper gate every day as he went about doing the Father's work to Repent, for the the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he said in Mark chapter 1. His first statement recorded for us on his quotation. When we step into eternity, and we have something like verse 9 summarizing our lives, so you rested, and whoever came after you came after you, and they buried you wherever they're going to bury you. I sure hope we have like a verse 3 and 4 that says we built the upper gate, and people can look at our lives and say, you know, This woman, my mom was like this. My sister was like this. My brother was like this. Build the upper gate. Because I'll probably do your memorial. Or you just might come to mine. We have today, here, now. This man, was he became mighty as he built the upper gate. And the kingdom was in his thoughts. It's how you treat people. It's how you respond to people. It's who we are. You build the upper gate with a quality effort as unto the Lord, serving humanity. Because we know if there's one thing that summarizes life, it's about serving others. That's pretty much agreed upon by all world religions too, by the way. It's a universal law. To the extent you serve others, you have a blessing in the human experience. To the extent you take advantage of others, you have nothing. There's no room for takers in the kingdom. And the key is to go on the narrow gate. The second thing we see, I hope that encourages you, and I want you to think about that, what we're building. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. I mean, that's what it means. And then we all see who he fought, verse 5. You know, like, we don't like conflict, but it says he, he, he also fought. So he built, he built, he built, he built. Yeah, I like build, build, build. But you know when you're building the kingdom? Hey, there's people going to fight you. There's people who don't like you building the kingdom. There's people who don't want your church in town. They don't want your home fellowship in the neighborhood. You know, they may have just like 30 cars, which I understand. I don't know. But they, they just don't like you. They don't like your light shining for the Lord. They don't like your witness for the Lord. They don't like you coming to work at Starbucks. They, they persecute you. They attack you for political causes. And you're like, I'm just here brewing coffee, man. Just do my job. Do yours too. And I speak from experience because Luke, my son, when he went to Calvary schools his senior year at Calvary, 
He became a manager at Starbucks when he was still a senior in high school. He's that guy. But he was attacked for everything just by identifying with Calvary Chapel High School. And it, they came after him from every direction. He's like, what are you talking about? Just do your job. Hey, there's 20 people in line right now. He worked at Starbucks at South Coast Plaza. You know that busy one? When you, walk, when you come in from the, the south side, that Starbucks has always got a line. He's like, hey, just don't you worry about that. Just do your job. Like, we're here to serve coffee. We work for Howard Schultz, our job, and the and stockholders. Our job is to provide a quality product. And Luke always shown for the Lord. He did that there. He did that when he worked at Turner's. He, worked, he did that when he worked for GCU, recruiting students on campuses to go to Grand Canyon University. And he does it for Hyundai to this day as a program analysis and a junior executive. Yeah. So as you shine for the Lord and you're doing the work, there's going to be conflict. People are going to come against you. Now, they might come against you because they know you, you love the Lord and they don't like you loving the Lord. They might come against you because there's a demon on their right shoulder trying to stir them up against you. Like, why is this person always like that? And then you, you go to them like, are we good? Like, what's the problem here? And it's like, I don't know, man. I just don't like you. Okay, well, we both like the Chargers. We both like the Clippers. We cheer for the Trojans. Like, what's not to like? We're, you know, we both surf. We're class of 87, two different schools, Southern California. Why can't we get on? I don't know. I just don't like you. You can't give me a reason why you don't. No, I just don't like you. And if you can see the spiritual realm where we fight against principalities and powers in heavenly places, there's like a demon, there's just a massive demon on their shoulder saying, hate this guy. And you learn that in ministry. Like, you find out how real the spiritual battle is when you step out in faith for the Lord just to do anything for the Lord. I'm going to be an usher at Calvary Chapel. Watch how that goes on Saturday night. The devil shows up at 10 o'clock at your house on Saturday night. Oh, you're going to be an usher tomorrow at Big Calvary, huh? Let me, all right, let me welcome you to, the, to, to your new volunteer position for the kingdom. Bam, bam, bam. I'm going to turn you and your wife against each other. I'm going to turn this into a cat fight. I'm going to turn the, like, you just, you don't even know why it's going that way. Because there's always conflict. There's always a battle. And the battle's between truth and falsehood, light and darkness. What's good, just and noble, and what's evil, corrupt and wicked. There's always a battle. We've been talking about this with these kings. There's always a right and wrong. And that's why, and, and here's the funny thing about right and wrong. Recently reading uh, Winning Friends and Influencing People, that famous, famous book by uh, Dale Carnegie. It's a classic. It's, most people have read it in the business world, and even my in-laws have read it and stuff, but the very beginning of the book talks about something that got my attention that, and it's written in the 30s, so they're talking about like Al Capone and these criminals from that day, and there's like, they've done studies, and this is the 30s, and it only, nothing new under the sun, but the vast majority of criminals, whether they murdered people, robbed people, stole them, or whatever evil they did, they're always justified in their mind. Like you really, and I thought, well, this is true because I've seen lots of false prophets in 35 years of pastoring, but I've never met one who said they were a false prophet. The false prophets show up and they sow discord and false doctrine. And they never say, hey, Pastor Joy, I'm the false prophet. Jesus warned you about it. Nice to meet you. Just passing through for a couple weeks. No, I've never met anyone, regardless of how weird their beliefs are, that have ever said, you know, I think I'm that false prophet. They never say that. And studies show that most criminals justify themselves to the very end. That, that, that's just human nature to justify ourselves. And so since people that are bad call good evil and evil good, there's only one way to discern between the two, the word of God. 
And that's why I say regularly, let God be true and every man a liar. And that's why it's so important that we're in the scriptures daily, that we're reading our Bible daily. We're going through the Bible yearly or every few years, but we're, we're in the Psalms, we're in Job, we're in Isaiah, we're in Book of Acts, we're in Second Peter. We are plowing the scriptures because the word of God is true and it's profitable for instruction, correction, reproof, and equipping for the things of God. So the standard isn't my opinion. We're not trying to pick fights with people. But truth is truth and falsehood is falsehood. Jesus is Lord and the devil is accused of the brethren. We get glory, he gets the lake of fire. People are going to heaven and people are going to hell. And there's light and life in Jesus and there's nothing but death apart from him for all eternity. And so just like Jotham fighting the Ammonites, you can't convince an Ammonite to leave you alone. An Ammonite wants to rule over you just like the demons that had you in bondage before you came to Christ and want to put you back in bondage after Christ. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We've been taken captive to do his will. But Christ has delivered us. For if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And having, we stand, put on the whole armor of God, and having done all, we stand and we have victory. Because our victory, we come from victory because the victory is in Jesus. But we have to fight. If we don't make the Ammonites subject to us, they will make us subject to them. In other words, if we don't fight the devil and the kingdom of darkness and the principalities of the air, they will make us subject to them just how it was before we came to Christ. And if you're in for a, a knockdown, drag out brawl spiritually, well, that's just, then you just got to fight the good fight. And that's what Paul said at the end of his life. I fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. But he said, I fought the good fight. There are bad fights. Some people just want to fight. They just want to argue, be contentious. You should read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It'll make you less contentious. But still, though, there's some fights you can't get around. And if you find yourself in a serious conflict, make sure you know you're on the side of what's right and true and just and noble. And make sure it's the Lord's battle and the Lord's fighting it for you, and you just have to stand. Because we see in the Bible, the way the, the New Testament believer has victory is to stand. It's to stand. To stand for truth and defend the defenseless. To stand. The whole armor of God and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. Our weapon is truth. And that's how we know falsehood from truth. And so Jotham fought. It's, it's what he built, the upper gate, and it's who he fought, the enemies of the Lord who came against him. And if, if we let God govern us, then we can govern that which would seek to rule over us. But if we don't let God govern us, then what Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin. And that's not good. The cross isn't so we can be a slave to sin or trample the Son of God underfoot again, as it says in Hebrews. But the cross is absolute victory. So Jotham, he lived 41 years, and he was a king for 16. And he built what needed to be built and the right things to build. And he focused on his deal. And he's like, we got to fight these guys. And if we don't do with them, they're going to come after us. And so he fought the right fight. And by the way, when we fight, the, we stand and are willing to deal with those battles the Lord has for us. Hey, what does it say? It says he defeated them. Any battle that we truly lose would be a battle that we probably shouldn't have fought. 
because I say this, you know, we're unstoppable in God's will. So if we're in God's will going forward and there's a conflict, it's really his battle. Or as David said when he faced Goliath, the, the battle belongs to the Lord. And we've seen that time and time again in Kings, Chronicles, and Samuel. The difference between people that are fruitful for the Lord and those that aren't are the people who are willing to fight for the right things. And sooner or later, every life has to decide which side they're on and accept the consequences how people perceive it who are on the other side. Just make sure that they're on the side of evil when they come against you because you're standing on the side of truth. Jotham was on the right side of that conflict. Israel still exists. Jesus is the king. He's coming again. And the Ammonites, well, if they're even around, they're just Ammonites. And they still don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let God be true and every man a liar. And finally, the last thing we see here with Jotham was pretty much where we, it's the latter part of what we said where he became mighty. He became mighty. So it's what he built, who he fought, and what he prepared. He prepared himself before the Lord. And it just kind of goes back to with people, their goals, their dreams, their careers, their calling, whatever. You know, you might say, like, when you work for someone else, you're working for their dream. Okay, fair enough. I mean, but if you're working for your dream, you have to work for someone else to move toward your dream. Okay, then that, then you're working toward your dream. But really, if you just exist and you don't care and you just exist, like the vast majority of people, you're just working for someone else's dream. So I hope you like your dream. But if you work for the, yourself, okay, so now let's take someone without the Lord. They're working for their dream, so they're ambitious. Oh, like Donald Trump, right? He worked for his dream. He built his empire. He started a football league. He did all these things. And he's still, you know, he is what he is, and he built his dream. All right, that's just the way he is, and he built his dream. And, you know, he's moving toward 80, so how much longer can he enjoy it? That's between him and the Lord, but he built his dream. Joe Biden, the current president, he built his dream. He's a politician, current politician. That was his dream. He just did his thing. You know, that's what he is. That's who he is. And, yeah, I mean, he became the president if you're a politician in America. That's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that's kind of the pinnacle of the dream. People build dreams. There's all Orange County's filled with entrepreneurs, women and men who have dreams, and they make things happen. You, you get your hustle on. You create this line of clothes. You do this with this thing, this beauty salon, whatever it is, and this financial plan. We live in a county where there's probably more dreams per person than most counties in America. Wouldn't you agree? There's a lot of big dreamers. I mean, there's a lot of big houses in Orange County because there's a lot of big dreamers. So most people work for someone else's dream. Some people work really hard for their dream. But what's it matter when you're at the end of your life and you've got like a terminal brain tumor and you own all that stuff, but it's just going to go to someone else. And you might be so mad, you don't even designate who gets it. So that just means the lawyers are going to get it. And ultimately, probably the governor in the state. But then you prepare yourself before the Lord. So you prepare to go work for someone else's dream or you prepare yourself for your dream or you prepare yourself to fulfill the purposes of God on your life. See, that's what Jotham did. He might have been the most powerful man in, the, in his world for 16 years, but he, 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 he didn't have a long time. The key to his success and his good fruit is he prepared his way before the Lord is God. See, if we think of all the people we see commuting at 7 a.m. in Orange County, and they're going up and down Brookhurst and Beach, they're getting on the 405, 22, oh, 55, here they come, right? It's all happening. 3.5 million people going to go for someone else's dream, their own dream or whatever, but if you're the woman 
or you're the man on Monday morning. And before you got in that car to go where you're going, you spent time with the Lord. And you spent time in the mirror and saying, this day is the Lord's. You prepared yourself for the Lord. Now you're, now you're really fulfilling the dream. It's the destiny of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And you're doing what you're called to do. And it doesn't matter if you're going to work at the lowest person at Taco Bell at 16 or the highest person in his corporate office off of Jamboree. Because you've prepared your way before the Lord. So you're ready to be with the Lord. You're with the Lord this morning. You're with the Lord at lunch. You're with the Lord on the commute home. You're with the Lord when you're breathing. And you're with the Lord when you breathe your last. You prepared your way before the Lord. Preparing our ways. Because before I used to prepare my way, and of course I'm always preparing my way as a husband, and I'm always preparing my way as a pastor and a leader, but I prepare my way as a parent. Like being involved with Timmy's life and Luke's life and Leah and Hannah and the things they're doing. And I'm still, like, it's my goal every week to have direct communication with all four of my adult children. And I, I want to check that box because I'm a box checker. And I want to check that box on Sunday that I had connection with all four of my adult kids every week that I'm alive. Because I'm in my 60s and I'm moving on. So I have vision for my adult kids, but I have vision for the grandkids. And you should too. Vision for WG, this church. Vision for the body of Christ. Vision for humanity. Vision for this country. Time with the Lord. Time in prayer. Time in his word. Time thinking about other people. Time thinking about your calling. What's the next quarter look like? What's this day look like? What's this week look like? What's next year look like? Like, people without a vision perish. And so, like, really asking the Lord to guide you and direct you, not just to exist. I mean, we do go day to day. One day at a time is a great statement. And give us this day our daily bread is a great statement. But it's good to have... Well, the king had to figure out, you, don't, you just don't build towers in the forest. You have a plan for building towers in the forest. And you don't just build the upper gate to the temple. You have to have a plan. So I would just close with this thought on this third point, that because he prepared his heart and his soul for the, for the person in the mirror, the character, the integrity, letting God mold him and shape him who he was, that moved him toward his calling to be as fruitful as he could be in his calling, what he's called to build and what his life's about. And that really put him in line to just have his attitude, his worldview, his actions and reactions all be shaped by the Lord. And before you know it, you're 41 and you're stepping into eternity. And that's it. So what an inspiring life to me. The umpire that you don't notice because he just, he got it right. He got it right, she got it right, and they were faithful and diligent. And so I close with this thought again, like the quality of life is in the service of what we give, and it's in the integrity of who we are, and it's a legacy of what we leave behind. And this man shows us what we should be building, who we should be fighting, and how, what, what we should be preparing our way before the Lord.